Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Tuesday, July 28th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. Every week I say Tuesday, and I wonder whether I should say Tuesday. I wonder what, what does Ian Manson say? You think? Because I think that's whatever the way he says it is probably. I'm just going to look up episodes of his show. His show is the news, by the way. But I'm going to look up episodes of Ian Hanamansing saying the word, and I'll, I'll be back to you next week. Anyway, it's either Tuesday or Tuesday. Today on the show, speaking of the news, huh? Victor Malarek, who is an investigative reporter, uh, he used to work for the Fifth Estate for CBC. He used to work for W5 for CTV, and uh, most famously, he did a big investigative story in 1989. About a drug, I'll say this, I don't want to give away too much, but a drug bust gone wrong. And Victor Malarek's story is now being told in a new film with Josh Hartnett. Josh Hartnett, the former teen heartthrob. So you kind of get two for one today. You got Victor telling his story about what he saw and what it's like to have his likeness um, be portrayed by a, a, a bit of a stud, you know, a bit of like a well-known heartthrob kind of guy. And then we talked to Josh Hartnett about why he took on the role and trying to get away from being just known as a bit of a heartthrob, trying to get away from be- from being a teen idol. After that, Courtney Marie Andrews sings you some devastatingly sad breakup songs that are somehow still about how much you love and care about the person you were once with. And then finally, if my Twitter DMs or my Twitter mentions exploding today wasn't enough of a sign, Harry Styles, a repeat of our interview with Harry Styles. But if you missed it the first time around, it's one of my favorite conversations we've ever had on the show. All right, show starts now. Welcome to the show. It is Tuesday. You know those movie scenes where reporters on the phone feet up at their desk talking to a source and you can see the pieces slowly kick clicking in their head and their eyes get wide and they grab a pen and start scribbling furiously and the strings start swelling in the background of the score and they realize they're all of a sudden sitting on a huge story that's just going to change everything and when they break that story it's going to shake the whole world awake and yeah, I mean, crackerjack journalism is such satisfying film content, isn't it? Isn't that, I mean, that's sort of a boring way to say it, but it makes for a good movie like All the President's Men or The Insider or Spotlight or The Post. And those movies are largely American. But in the new movie, Target Number One, you get to spend some time with a Canadian newspaper, The Globe and Mail, back in 1989. That's where the journalist Victor Malarek broke this huge international story about a drug sting gone wrong and a falsely imprisoned young Canadian. You might know Victor from The Fifth Estate on CBC or CTV's W5. And now he's being portrayed by the actor Josh Hartnett in this new movie. So here's Victor to talk about the case and the guy who plays him in the movie. My name is Victor Malarek. I've been an investigative reporter for 47 years, now retired and trying to take it easy with my life. But this film was done on a story or an investigation I did back in the late 80s. I'd heard that a huge, mega heroin importer to Canada had been arrested in Thailand, that he'd been taken down. And sadly, a Mountie had been killed. And what I started to uncover after meeting Alain Olivier, the, the so-called huge heroin importer to Canada, was that he was set up, that the whole crime that he was convicted of and given 99 years in prison for was created by a group of drug investigators with the RCMP out of Vancouver. They created the crime and left him there actually to be executed. But he commit, But he said to himself, I got to plead guilty because I don't want to go and, and get killed. I started looking into this and found so many things wrong with what had happened that I went after it. I got a call from Daniel Roby, the director, who was talking to me about, <laughs> I read about what you had done and Alain Olivier's story. It's, it's really fascinating. And we met... I think on two or three occasions for seven hours each time, I kept thinking to myself, you know, if this was a film, this would give validation to 
Alain Olivier and all of the hell that he went through for what? For nothing. I was quite fascinated when Josh Hartnett came over to um, to see me and, uh, you know, a few of my friends were around and they were saying, that's Josh Hartnett, that's Josh Hartnett. And I said, yeah, yeah, he's going to play me in a, in a movie, I think, if, if it ever gets made. But when I talked to him, I could see that he was really concentrating on me. And I kept saying to him, you know, when you go after some stuff the way I do, you got to have... You have to have the burn. It's one thing that I did with all of my investigations. You have to take it with a burn in your gut. When I saw the film and I saw Josh in it, I saw so much of myself and thought, wow, he really captured me because he called me a few times and I kept saying to him, make sure you got the burn. And, you know, I I kept saying to him, you got to get that energy across. You got to get that anger across and you got to get that drive across. And he did. I was quite fascinated by his role and fascinated by, uh, you know, the way he portrayed me. I had a lot of friends say to me when they saw the posters and whatever, wow, he's really good looking. <laughs> I'd laugh and I'd go, yep. And they'd say, well, he kind of looks a bit like you, eh? And I said, well, after a while when they play me or someone plays me, you see, you see the character of me coming out. And that's one of the things I, I was hoping that my character would come out. And he brought it out and he brought it out brilliantly. That is the former Canadian investigative journalist Victor Malarek talking about the new film Target Number 1, which is based on one of his high-profile investigations, and Josh Hartnett plays him in the movie. So a couple of interesting things there. One, I just love his description of the burn that you have to have and his advice to give Josh that burn. And also the idea of seeing himself in a poster and seeing this very handsome Josh Hartnett playing him. And yeah, Josh Hartnett is sort of known as this Hollywood heartthrob. He played Trip Fontaine, the dreamboat in the movie The Virgin Suicides. He was also in movies like Pearl Harbor and Black Hawk Down. But after all these years of getting typecast as a bit of a Hollywood, you know, super stud, Josh kind of walked away from the whole blockbuster thing. And for the past decade and a half, he's been trying to do things he finds a bit more interesting, be it theater or indie films, or he's on this TV series called Penny Dreadful. So maybe it's not actually that strange to find him now in a small Canadian film about a news story from three decades ago. I got to talk to Josh about what led him to these choices and about Victor and this latest film, Target Number One. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, thanks for having me. And how's how's your pandemic? You're in London. I'm uh, yeah, outside of London. We are. It's (laughs) it's been a very strange time, but it's been uh, you know it's been good for family. It's been really nice to be able to spend time just being dad. An interesting time to be releasing a film. It is, but uh, the film has been finished for almost two years now, so I think it has to come out eventually, right? So let's uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's let's how it goes. Put it out there and let's see what people think. It's a really good film. Uh, I don't mean that to be disparaging about the film at all, because uh, the, the guy who wrote it and directed it, uh, Daniel Roby, is a you know he's a really talented guy. He wrote a very long, very involved script uh, that detailed all of these different people's lives that were involved in this story. And he and he shot the whole thing for very little money and was able to kind of navigate, I think, a very you know, difficult shooting schedule. Uh, it's very cleverly put together in its, uh, the way that it deals with time. And the performances are really good. And I think it's, I mean, I'm very proud of it. I can't it's, wait for it to see it. It is, it is a very good film, but one inspired by a 30-year-old Canadian news story. Um, what, what, what was it that made you interested in, in, in this story? Well, you know, I grew up in Minnesota and, uh, I, I read a lot of news, uh, it's a tick, I guess, but everyone does now, but I always have, and I'd never heard of this, you know, and I couldn't believe that a story that had this much kind of corruption at such a high level, uh, just across the border in Canada was, was virtually unknown in the States. And I was drawn in by the story, but then also you know, Danielle's enthusiasm for the story was the thing that really kind of pushed me over the edge. So I read the script. I thought, oh, this is a really good setup, a really good piece. This character is kind of super heroic, but also uh, is going through a time of conflict in his life in which he thinks maybe he has to step back a little bit. Uh, I was about to become a father for the first time. Uh, and this character is also becoming a father. And I just sort of related to it. And then Daniel said, uh, why don't you come up? I was living in New York at the time. He said, why don't you come up to Toronto and meet Victor? And I came up, met Victor, and then I just had I had to do it. He's one of the most charismatic people I've ever met. And what, just, what, what was your impression of him when you met him? 
Well, that's it. I mean, he was, he's, he's such an integrated person. He's like, what he wants to do is where he sort of focuses all his energy and somehow he's made a career out of that. And, and he's just, he's, he, he's a force of nature. It's overused force of nature. Everybody says it, but Victor, he changes things when he walks into a room. It's just the way he is. And, uh, and I responded to that, but I also responded to the fact that he was dealing with a lot of self-doubt at this time during, during the course of this story. And I read his book, Gut Instinct, that was basically, this story was called Gut Instinct, originally this film. And uh, I, I just, I don't know, I just, I, I felt for him and I related to, it, to, his, to his passion, I think. We, we have a clip from the film. This is you as Victor interviewing uh, the man who's stuck in a Thai jail. Take a listen to this. You were never a dope dealer. I'm a junkie, man. I'm guilty of that. I admit it, but that's it. All right. But you said that you couldn't come here because of passport issues and money problems. But you're here right now. Because they paid for it. Who paid for it? Those guys, the federal agents, they paid for everything. They bought you a plane ticket? Plane ticket, hotel, food, expenses, everything. That's you as journalist Victor Malarek speaking with the Canadian jailed in Thailand. Uh, Josh Hartnett is my guest. I understand, as you mentioned, that uh, Victor and Alain Olivier were both involved, uh, heavily involved in the film. Does that, um, does that put a, a pressure on you when not just is it a real person, but that person is involved in the film? Well, uh, Alain was on set. Uh, Victor, thankfully, was not on set. I don't know if I could have done my work <laughs> there the whole time. Uh, he was, uh, Victor, I spoke to beforehand quite a bit. And I spoke to him a bit afterward, after we finished filming, but while we were filming, I didn't really speak to him because I didn't, I, I, I knew information halfway through filming was not going to be helpful. I didn't want to find out that something I've been doing just didn't make any sense, you know? But sometimes when I see someone like yourself portraying someone who is alive, Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't imagine the pressure that must be. And I can't imagine like how different that is than, you know, portraying a guy named, you know, Jeremy who works at a pet store. Yeah. I think it's surreal, but Jeremy from the pet store also has to have an internal life, you know, like you you have to, this character is uh, an encapsulation of something that Daniel felt was going to best represent Victor Mallory. It's not Victor Mallory. I mean, like there's so much more complexity mm. to a person than there can be portrayed in a two-hour film. Uh, it is, and it's the same thing with, uh, you know, Jeremy. I mean, it's, you have to be able to kind of make him as, uh, as three-dimensional as possible and to work within the context of the story. Uh, but the pressure to to um to i think deliver an honest performance is always there and to not uh, mess it up uh, for the sake of your uh relationship with the person that you're <laughs> that you're portraying yeah is 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 much more than jeremy i guess but i guess it felt sometimes watching this film that it felt like i was watching the portrayal of an ideal as well now whether that was your intention or not i mean i felt like especially in this time where journalism can be under attack and investigative journalists in, in particular can be under attack. It felt like I was sort of um, watching an ideal uh, on screen. Were you, were you thinking about this role in the lens of a journal, in the, in the lens of the conversation around journalism right now? Yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a, there was a part of me that was, uh, that was pissed off that science and journalism have been under attack for the last few years. I mean, this is not a, it's not, a normal situation, I think, what we're dealing with right now in the U.S. Um, and you don't want the the conversation is just so far off kilter at this point uh, to leave all of the the facts off the table, and it's just a question of politics whether or not you believe in in somebody's journalism. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, so I, I yeah I mean I, I felt I, I felt a sort of uh, kinship with the character in that way I wanted to, I wanted him to do well and I wanted him to be taken seriously for sure. If you're just joining us, my guest is Josh Hartnett. We're talking about um, his new film and new Canadian film inspired by a story that was uncovered by investigative reporter Victor Malarik. Um, Josh, it's still it's still interesting to see you in some of these roles, knowing you as I did. I'm I'm 33, so I'm just sort of in that perfect age bracket 
to have known you as the guy who my you know high school girlfriend had um, sort of pasted up on her on a on her, on her locker. And I and I can see you. I can see you wincing. By the way, and given this yeah. is given that this is a radio show, I'll I'll, I'll point it out. It's, that's a, that's also an experience that not a lot of people have. You know how do how do you reflect on that time, even though so much of it was out of your control? Well, it was. Uh, it allowed me, I guess, uh, the freedom to. I guess uh, the roles that I was able to play at that time allowed me the freedom to to continue to work in this business for a very long time. At this point, I, I'm still surprised that it's been uh, well over 20 years that I've been making films. But I, I, I at that moment was not uh, was not enamored with the idea of being looked at that way because I, I thought of myself as having more going on underneath the surface. But I was, uh, you know, I understood that it was also uh, very lucky for me to be in that circumstance. So. It, it does feel like a dehumanization sometimes to me. Like you either become um, the subject of someone's sort of nostalgia or the yeah. subject of, or, or, or they don't necessarily see you as, a, see you as a full dimensional person, you know? Yeah, but I think that that's part of, I think, anything pop, right? Anything that becomes popular ends up being sort of made into a uh, two-dimensional character. Um, it's not... It's 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 not easy to sell a whole person, you know, and that's part of what I was saying about Victor as well. And in, in, in the idealized version of this character, it's a it's 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 very difficult to encapsulate everything that a person is. And in, in the course of a short story, it's also very, very difficult to do that in the course of a, you know, 10 minute interview. Right. So it's a it, it becomes uh, almost necessity to uh, boil someone down to a few very basic characteristics. I personally just try not to pay attention to what people, how people are critiquing my choices and just make the choices that feel best to me. Um, I think that's the best I can do. What, is, what does it feel like when it feels the best? What does it feel like in, when, in your craft when you feel like you're really operating on all cylinders? This, I mean, this was a perfect example where it was uh, working with passionate people on a, on a project that is... Uh, is unlikely to get off the ground unless everything comes together in the right way. Uh, and knowing that there's that risk of it all collapsing somehow um, highlights the necessity for the director himself and makes everybody on set feel uh, like they have to bring everything of themselves. They have to. They have to. They have to bring their A game every day uh, because there's just no room for for error. There's no time for it. Uh, and that is exciting, you know, to be a part of projects that are actually pushing the envelope in that direction. Also, uh, I mean, whenever I read a story that, uh, that I haven't read before that, that, that doesn't get made in our business, uh, that's somehow trying to, uh, stand out or maybe just is different. I, I like films that feel organically different. Um, and I've been able to do a lot of that over the course of my career. And it's just, it's always, it's, you know, I'm educated by it, but also, um, but also I get excited by the prospect of being a part of something that's just unlike other things that are out there. Yeah. I think when, at first, when you said, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful, it's a bit uncomfortable, but I'm grateful for that early sort of teen idol part of my life because it allowed me to make the decisions that I'm able to make now. I, I, I believe I, I kind of understood what you were talking about, but now that you've said this, I, I think I fully understand what you're talking about is that you're now afforded the ability to do work that is very, very meaningful to you. Yeah. Um, and, the, and, and that was given to you by uh, a very odd time in anyone's life. Yeah. Well, an, un an unusual time, I think, for, for anyone. Uh, I, yeah, I'm, uh, I have not had uh, a very, I guess, cut and dry career path so far. And, you know, I'd like to keep it that way if possible. But, you know. Yeah. You know, in looking at the next 20 years, you're still a young man. You still have a, a long career ahead of you. Is there, is there a mental checklist? Is there something that a, a script or a role needs to have for someone like yourself who I can tell is particular uh, to take on? I would say that if a character is, uh, it's it's more appealing than it is a than it than it is a checklist. Uh, there can be an element of a film that makes it different just in its essence, and the character can be quite simple, and that's still fine. You know, it could be it could be a challenge to kind of make that simple character into something 
uh, organically interesting within that that project, mm-hmm. but the project itself might be outside of the box. Or maybe there's an opportunity, like I just had a couple of years ago, to work with this director named Lech Majewski, who is a who is a visual artist, Polish visual artist, and he's made some very uh, very very interesting pieces of work. But his films are not necessarily meant to be understood in a uh, literal sense. In that instance, my whole job is to be a uh, a, a tool essentially a paint you know one 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 color on the canvas and it's like it, that's a to me that was a creative choice even though it's sort of anti-creative you know what i mean the simple answer is no there's no there's no formula otherwise the formula would have to be broken immediately <laughs> yeah i think i think i think what i'm hearing is that it's it's perhaps exploration you know whether yeah. it's not yeah it's, it's it's exploration that is that is ultimately you know very important that's a much clearer way of putting it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. That's that's all that's going to get in this interview. Yeah, we'll, yeah, yeah. We're going to cut this down to 13 seconds of me of me saying something yeah. and you going, "That's right." Yeah, that's go. That was Josh Hardin. Thanks what a lot. That's exactly. good. Thank what a, what a joy it is to talk to you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Josh Hartnett stars in the Canadian film Target Number One. It's playing in some theaters across the country. The ones that are actually open in British Columbia, Alberta, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick. If you're in the United States, you can catch the movie now. On demand. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Here's a story we're looking at for you today. The Ellen DeGeneres Show, or Ellen, one of daytime's TV's most popular talk shows, is under scrutiny by its parent company. This comes after a BuzzFeed article described a toxic work environment. Current and former staff members at The Ellen Show said they experienced, quote, racism, fear, and intimidation. Allegations include racist comments, someone getting fired over bereavement leave. At least one former staff member said it was Ellen DeGeneres' responsibility to be aware of her senior management's behavior. Now, Warner Media has officially launched an investigation into these claims. So far, the production company and Ellen DeGeneres herself have not commented publicly on the investigation. However, in response to the initial BuzzFeed article, the executive producers of the talk show released a statement that read in part, quote, We are truly heartbroken and sorry to learn that even one person in our production family has had a negative experience. It's not who we are. It's not who we strive to be and not the mission Ellen has set for us. All right, so uh, it's this is a really beautiful piece of music. There's a group in Toronto called Choir, 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 and in normal non-COVID times, hundreds of people get together in a room every week to sing popular songs in a bar. It's run by these two guys, Nobu Edelman and David Goldman, but these are not normal times, so Nobu and David picked this song called Across the Universe by the Beatles, and then they asked people from all over the world to send in videos of themselves singing the different parts, and they ended up with submissions from 15 hundred people. They saved the lead vocals for none other than Rufus Wainwright. They edited it all together. So here it is. This is Choir, Choir, Choir and Rufus Wainwright and 1,500 people all together through COVID singing across the universe. Take a listen. Words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither while they pass. They slip away across find this post Rufus put up about this performance. I think he said something. There it is. I have sung across the universe for many years, but only now do I understand the chorus. It is really the universe that is singing. Nothing's going to change my world. And he talks about gratitude he has for choir, choir, choir and doing that. That is choir, choir, choir with Rufus Wainwright singing across the universe. Rufus just put out his first new album in a long time called Unfollow the Rules. You can check out that interview we did with him about that record on the CBC Listen app or at cbc.ca slash Q. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. 
You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Tom Power. If you've ever gone through a breakup, especially if it was someone you really loved and saw a future with, then you know that feeling of emptiness and loss that lives at the center of the heartbreak. You're mourning what you had with your partner, as well as you're mourning the future you won't get to have. But then somehow you come out of the fog, you meet yourself on the other side of it, and you try to do okay. For Courtney Marie Andrews, writing her new album, Old Flowers, has been part of that journey. She's an award-winning songwriter. She's originally from Phoenix, Arizona. She now lives in Nashville. And the album tells the story of her nine-year relationship that ended last year and how loving and caring for the person she couldn't be with actually helped her heal. She joined me from her home in Nashville to perform from that album and to chat a little bit about it. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm very well. I have to say I'm a bit wistful because I spend a lot of time in Nashville. I have a lot of good friends down there and I, I sort of get away. I get down there, you know, whenever I can. And um, it's been so sad in so many ways and so scary to see the city sort of um, ebb and flow. Like it feels like there's moments where it feels very safe there. And then there's moments where it feels like people aren't wearing masks at all. And then it feels like a moment where people are, you know, going back inside again. H- how are you doing in Nashville to start things off? You know, there is, um, I feel like it's group by group people. Um, There is obviously a large amount of people down on Broadway that are not taking the pandemic seriously, unfortunately. But I'd say a lot of the people in the music industry are because we're so affected by it. Um, This this pandemic has like completely derailed all of our years. And so, you know, I think a lot of us are kind of hunkering down, hanging out, but outside, you know, making it very like, safe you know it's 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 an environment that i think we were we were we were expecting to be conducive to creativity too you know like we were expecting like oh finally i'm going to get three or four months off the road i'm going to be so productive but what i'm noticing from a lot of people myself included is that it's just not happening you know like it's not it's not happening at the at the volume you thought it would yeah i think this is a very traumatic experience and um none of us really know it's so uncertain so it feels strange to like create during this time because of that. Um, I've luckily used creativity as like an anchor because I live alone. So, you know, it's, it's either I create something or I watch Netflix and most, <laughs> most days I'm like, I should probably just make something, but strangely not in my, I'm not creating things that I would typically create like songs, you know, what are you doing? I, well, I've been writing um, my first collection of poetry and I've also been painting. So yeah, just completely uncharted territory. It's not maybe yeah. in some ways not surprising to me when I think about this record, because, you know, in, in many ways, I hear you working through things on this mm-hmm. record. And, you know, I, I do want to talk about it. So you, you and as much as you want to, by the way, and I realize that what's a story to me is something that happened to you. So your, your relationship ends and you start to make music. I, I read that you couldn't bring yourself back to you couldn't bring yourself to listen to a lot of the music that you were making. Could you talk to me about that a little bit? Yeah, during the breakup, when I was writing these songs, it just felt too close to home. And I was almost like embarrassed by my feelings um, about the situation. What were you embarrassed about? Well, I just felt so much. I felt um, there's like particularly a track that I'm speaking to that felt the most true and that's guilty. Oh, I'm guilty. I've fallen in love with you. I really did feel guilty. I felt like I had betrayed this person and betrayed love. And I just felt 
I really felt that way intensely and I, I just, it, it was hard for me to sing it, you know, until the studio. So I pretty much wrote it, played it maybe once or twice and then didn't play it until uh, we recorded it. <laughs> so. But I can't, I bring myself to let it go and say goodbye. You're, you're going to play a song now called Ships in the Night. Um, before we hear it, can you tell me a little bit about where you were in this journey when you wrote it? Yeah, I made Ships in the Night the last song on the record because it feels like how I feel about this person in love. And it's sort of like the timing wasn't right. And it's sort of my like letting go, wishing you well song, you know. And um, it's kind of a song that is sort of sending love to somebody you know you can't be with you know even though in sort of another reality maybe it would have been the perfect thing this is courtney marie andrews performing ships in the night from her new album old flowers i'm sending you a postcard from the united states with words on the back
Courtney Marie Andrews performing Ships in the Night off her new album, Old Flowers. I want to go back to something I said in the introduction is when you listen to this record, it's obviously coming from a place of heartbreak. You know, you obviously went through a very challenging thing and a, and a, a very sad um, breakup. And again, I don't want to get too much into the details, but I, 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 did, I did say that. Well, actually, maybe can I get one story off you first, if you don't mind telling it, about the yeah. owl? Like an owl yeah. showed up and was sort of the harbinger, harbinger of your of your breakup. Yeah, it's it's sort of crazy. Um, we were visiting my mother in Arizona, um, it's where I'm from, and it was a year to the day before we ended up breaking up. But the craziest part about the story, let me like start it off by saying the we started dating on New Year's Day, maybe ten years ago, eleven years ago. And then about nine years after we started dating, we were in my mother's backyard in Arizona. And on New Year's Day, a great horned owl dropped dead at our feet. These are big. Like these from, are, we don't really, I don't, I don't see these things in real life very often. They're quite big, right? They're quite. They're massive. Yeah. It looks, it looked fake. Like their eyes are so, you know, large and it, it didn't have any, any, um, cuts any bleeding any like broken bones it was really strange it was like this beautiful like perfectly i don't know if it like had a stroke like in midair or something but (laughs) it just completely perfectly fell down and obviously like the first thing you think you know especially growing up so close to like the native american culture and like spirituality revolving around their culture it's like the first thing i think of i'm like oh well it's a sign it's an, omen, it's an omen, you know, uh, for something, for change. And we were both really freaked out and ended up feeling like the sort of beginning of the end in, in, in a way. And we ended up breaking up a year later on New Year's Day. Oh, my God. After yeah. so, so the owl, not that the owl predicted it, but I think I, think, I could see what you mean, that you can take meaning into these symbols. And there's a little bit of this, like... Um, I don't want to say mysticism, but sort of spirituality or, or something beyond our, our day-to-day life on this record. I want to play another song. Take a listen to this. How sweet life was when we first met Then I lose you each night in this carnival dream And when I wake up Just tuning in, my name is Tom Power. My guest is singer-songwriter Courtney Marie Andrews. Her new album, Old Flowers, is out now. And that's a song called Carnival Dream. Could you tell us the story of the, the actual dream? Because I thought that was a pretty amazing story. Yeah. Um, so it was about a few months after the breakup, and I just moved to Nashville. And, you know, my ex and I weren't really talking, obviously, just to try and distance ourselves after, you know, the end. Yeah. And uh, I woke up in the middle of the night, like 2 or 3 a.m. to this sort of nightmarish dream where I was searching for him at a carnival. And it was the strangest dream, but I just like was looking everywhere for him at this carnival and I couldn't find him no matter how hard I tried. I just couldn't find him. So I wrote this song on the record, Carnival Dream, at 2 or 3 a.m. in the middle of the night. Very quickly, maybe like, Nine hours later, woke up and got a text from him, said, like, should we catch up? And I was like, yeah. And it was just kind of a strange, you know, I had the dream and then he texted. And then anyways, long story short, we ended up catching up at this bar. And before we kind of said our goodbyes, um, he said the hardest part about, you know, losing you in this breakup is that I have this reoccurring nightmare every night where I search for you at a carnival. At a carnival. Yeah. So we had the same dream where we were searching for each other at a carnival separately. And it was like one of the weirdest, 
weird like I'm you know I don't have any ghost stories really I don't have any like <laughs> it was like one of these like you know I don't have like extraterrestrial like experiences often <laughs> or ever really and it felt like that to me I'm like oh this is weird this is really weird yeah have this dream these are these are yeah. two very spooky stories you're telling Courtney. I, I, know. <laughs> I know it's it it yeah there's a there was a lot of strange mysticism that seemed to like occur surrounding you know and symbolism i guess um and you you take what you want with those things but you know i i derived a lot of meaning from from it all has he has he heard the record have you talked about it no i you know it was very painful and i would never expect him to i mean it's all very personal and so i i try and respect you know that and people's emotional states and yeah there's a version of this record where it's all very angry you know very angry very songs about hurt but i want to go back to what i said at the introduction and see if you kind of agreed with me on that that like when i listened to the record it was very sad (laughs) it was very sad and it made me think about very sad things of course that have happened in my life too but i did feel love in it like i felt love for you to him I felt kindness um, from you to him. And I, I want to know how intentional that was that like, and what you had to do to get to that place um, where this record can end up sounding hopeful about love while talking about the end of it. I feel like when you spend that much time with somebody, and that's the reason that I named the album Old Flowers is because we were truly in love, you know, for many years. Um, but we started dating really young and we, you know, just things change. You grow up, you grow differently, up differently. And I think when I was writing these songs, I still did in many ways have a lot of love and for him and still do and always will. But I think that, I think in Western culture, we often like look at love as a failure if it ends, like you Mm. failed, if you just, if it doesn't last. And I think that's a really poor way of looking at it. I think it's a triumph that it started or began at all, you know? My, my guest is Courtney Marie Andrews. Uh, before you go, I wanted to ask you about this. I was, you know, I was reading about your last record before this one, and I was reading that you used to work in a pizza parlor in, in Arizona. And the pizza parlor was right next to the office of former Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was called, you know, America's most hated lawmaker. He was convicted for contempt of court in 2017 after he defied a judge's order to stop racially profiling Latinx people. And then now U.S. President Donald Trump later pardoned him for that. The reason I bring this up is not to bring up, you know, the experience of what it was like to to work in this sort of environment or grow up in this sort of environment, but because you've seen protests erupt against him and you've taken part in some of them yourself. And I was just wondering if those experiences protesting something very close to you shapes the way you're seeing this moment happening right now, you know, not on TV, but being there, you know, this global moment against racism, against um, police brutality. I I wanted to know if being so close to it there gave you any perspective. Yeah. I mean, these things have been happening since I was a teenager. I've been protesting, you know, systematic racism, not, you know, only against, um, and also, yeah, just, yeah, just systematic judgment. And also, you know, for the, for the uh, power of um, immigrants and also for the, the power of black people and people of color, like it's, it's been happening in America forever. And if there's one thing that I'll say about all this, it's that I'm very grateful that it's the, the biggest protests that have happened, you know, and, and people are finally waking up to it. And especially, you know, there has been like so much police brutality against black people forever. And, you know, these things happen and people become desensitized to it. And I think it's so important that in some ways this pandemic acted as a catalyst for people to be like, no, you know, everybody's home long enough to where like, no, we're done. This is done. We got to, this is, we have to change this, you know, and being around it and seeing how many people are sort of becoming more culturally woke, you know, is, is amazing. Like I, 
am so proud of all the work that the activists are doing and that, you know, the music community is doing. It's, it's very inspiring. Um, we're we're going to go out on a song from the, from the record. Uh, let's go out on burlap string before we go out on it. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, this is sort of the mark of grieving that first initial stage when you kind of wish you could go back and change how this, the story went. So, Hey, it's been so nice to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. You too. In a small west coast town, there's a family in the house where the memories of us belong. Courtney Marie Andrews from Phoenix, Arizona, now living in East Nashville, Tennessee. That's a song called Burlap String off her new album, Old Flowers. And if your heart is hurting during this pandemic, if you're one of the one of the folks uh, who went through a breakup during this pandemic, which just sounds horrible, uh, that's a good record for you. Uh, just before that, you heard my conversation with Courtney. You can get Old Flowers everywhere now. You can get the album, too. Tom Power. As Harry Styles and lights up off his new album, Fine Line. Pretty great song. I think, you know, pretty great record overall. And what's really more amazing about it than the actual music itself is that he's done something that's pretty hard to do. Breaking free of the boy band thing. Breaking free of his days in the British boy band One Direction, or the British-Irish boy band One Direction, and becoming a massive star all his own. You might remember One Direction. You're insecure, don't know what for. You're turning heads when you walk through the door. Don't need makeup to cover up Being the way that you are is enough Everyone else in the room can see it Everyone else but you Baby, you light up my world like nobody else The way that you flip your hair gets me overwhelmed That is the sound of One Direction and the sound of 2011. That is What Makes You Beautiful. And they were kind of the most famous band on earth for a while. Their faces were on keychains and stickers and posters and backpacks and lockers. I saw one one time that was like, you know, the ends of shoelaces, like the little plastic ends of shoelaces. I saw those where you could have each of their faces on the ends of your shoelaces. Like they're that kind of big and still really good. There's a new One Direction website that launched this month for the 10th anniversary of the band's formation. So Harry Styles had a really interesting, sometimes tough journey to walk away from all that, to redefine who he is and figure out how to make the music that he wants to make on his own terms and not have to worry about his past in One Direction. Because, you know, even when you go solo, when you start making more, quote unquote, authentic stuff, your fans still influence your work in ways that you don't even notice and in ways that can pull you away from yourself. So earlier this year, I got to sit down in a room with Harry Styles in New York City and we talked about art and we talked about pressure and we talked about it all. Here's our conversation. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? It's lovely to meet you. It's nice to meet you. Thanks for coming down. Oh my God, it's our pleasure. Wait, are we in Canada or are we in New York? Uh, we're in New York. Okay, we are in New York. We're, no, we're, we're telling the truth. I didn't know if we were faking. Okay. <laughs> we're not, we're not no. faking it at all. Okay. So nice to be here. Oh, it's so nice in Canada. So nice to be here year. among the maple yeah. trees. It's so yeah. gorgeous. And yeah, free, Michael Bublé. Free huh? healthcare. It's incredible. Yeah. I really love it. Yeah. I um, I really loved listening to your record, Harry. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really enjoyed every moment of it. I listened Thanks. to it. Um, I listened to it when it came out, and then I, I put it on twice yesterday when I knew I was coming down. And I really feel like I heard a couple of things. Mm-hmm. I heard like a deep, 
um, a deep sense of longing mm-hmm. in some of those songs. Mm-hmm. And I also heard a sheer joy. And they weren't exclusive from one another. Mm-hmm. Like in the moments of longing, I still heard joy because it felt like I heard you doing what you wanted to do. Right. Am I, am I on to something? Um, I think so. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I hear when I listen to it. And I think that's what, um, that's what I have loved about the record so much is that I think some of my most positive moments have been listening to some of the sadder songs. And I think there's moments where, um, you know, you get to some of the like most emotional moments on the album. And to me, they feel quite uplifting. Um, especially stuff like fine line, um, pretty sad song. And then, uh, you know, I wanted that end to kind of be very, um, it just feels quite optimistic to me, I think. And uh, it kind of felt like the perfect way to finish the record. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm pleased you kind of got that from it, I guess. Um, but I think I think when you write sad songs, you, you can gain a lot from them. I don't think, you know, sometimes they're, they're, it's just as simple as them being a good outlet to kind of get something out. Um, and it's nice sometimes to kind of wrap a feeling up in like a little three and a half minute package. And it doesn't mean that you have to kind of wallow in it. It can be like, okay. And and, and then you gain something from it. You know, you get a song from it and, and you can turn an experience that isn't necessarily that positive into a positive one and you can learn from it. And um, I think that's kind of what's exciting about music, you know. Just simply processing yeah. hard things. Yeah. And... and yeah, it's almost therapeutic in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's um it's difficult to be as honest with any person as you can be like with an instrument. Yeah. If you're just, you know, sitting and writing with a guitar or a piano or something and um it's sometimes even if it doesn't end up being the song just saying something out loud can be nice to kind of get that out. Um so yeah, I definitely find writing like incredibly therapeutic. Yeah, it reminds me. Sometimes I go to, sometimes I go to therapy, and I feel like all I did was talk, right? And I didn't hear anything back, right? And I realize that that is the point. That of in itself is, is, <laughs> yeah. is a beautiful thing, you know. Right. It really yeah. is. Did it feel different than making the first one, the first solo one? Yeah, it, it felt very different. Um, like less it, pressure. It or? felt. I'd say, yeah, I think less pressure, but more more just that I put less pressure on myself, I think. Um, I felt like, um, I mean, first of all, it was much longer um, and it was a lot more frustrating and I'd say it was probably more difficult in terms of the actual, like, finishing it and everything. But I think I think at each moment when when you get to those things where, you know, you're making something that you really care about. Um, sometimes it's nice because as soon as you come out the other side of the difficult section, the frustrating section, you're like, it's not supposed to be easy. Um, and I'd be, it'd scare me a bit if I kind of made an album and was like, oh, this is really easy. And, you know, I'm so happy with everything all of the time and there's no questions to be asked about anything. I wouldn't trust it. Um, right, exactly. So I'd say the main difference was... I think when I listen back to the first album now and when I think back to making it was, I think I, I worried a lot just about getting it wrong. I think I, when I listen to it, I can hear places where I was trying really hard not to get it wrong and it feels a little like playing it safe a little bit. What does getting it wrong mean? I don't know. I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that I put very much on myself because, you know, there's there's not really a right and a wrong in, in music. And that's what's exciting about it. But it's also really scary because sometimes you don't, you don't have that, like, well, is this right? Is this wrong? It, do, it doesn't really exist. Not like so science, kind of, right? Where it's, yeah. you know, you get, there's, yeah, there's, you're kind, of, math, you're there's kind of to floating. The yeah. Um, but I think when I listen to it and I loved the first album, um, but I think when I listen to it, it, it kind of feels like I was almost like bowling with the sides up a little bit. And I feel like when it came to making this album, I took those bumpers down and it just felt so much more free and joyous. And 
I just like had a better time and I was happier experimenting and it felt more about like what feels good and what makes me excited to make stuff. And there was no, there wasn't really any point until like, I've never made a record. I mean like, okay, what are the singles and what are the songs that people are going to hear and what are we going to put out first? And we kind of finished the album and then you go, okay, okay, what comes first and how do you kind of display this album in the best way, I guess, rather than, okay, we've got like the single that's going to be played and we'll do a video for this one and now we like fill in the gaps and yeah. hope that everybody likes it. Yeah. And um, I mean, that's really nice for me and I'm, I'm lucky, you know, that I, I work with people who allow me to do that. Um, but it, it kind of... It just makes the process like so much more exciting to me. Um, but it also means that like every song counts. If you're just tuning in, I'm Tom Power and you're listening to Q. Harry Styles is my guest. You might know him from the boy band One Direction and now with a burgeoning solo career. Harry Styles has become one of the biggest pop stars in the world and his idol is an unlikely one, David Bowie. One thing that was on my mind when I was listening to the record regarding all this, and of course your, mm. your, your past and your, and your histories, it was on my mind while I was listening to it. And I was reading about you on, you know, when I was getting ready to talk mm. to you and I read this, the Rolling Stone article about you, which was lovely. And oh. one of the things it said was it quoted this David Bowie thing, you know, never play to the gallery. Oh, yeah. I tracked down the clip and I watched it last night. Mm -hmm. Never play to the gallery. <laughs> never work for other people at what you do. Always remember that the reason that you initially started working was that there was something inside yourself that you felt that if you could manifest it in some way, you would understand more about yourself and how you coexist with the rest of society. Yeah, and it's something he says later that really actually stuck with me, and I wrote it down here. He said, I think it's terribly dangerous for an artist to fulfill other people's expectations. <clears throat> how have you found? Um... I think, I mean, I think it's so true. I think you're, you're just, I mean, I, I wish I could just say that the whole clip quote and pretend it was my own. I think it's I mean, so perfect. You, you can, I think you'd get away with it's, it. It's, um, I just think like if you're, first of all, if, if you're going to make something that you don't like, if you're just trying to please people, then I think the worst thing that can happen is, it doesn't go well and you just regret the fact that you didn't make what you wanted to make. I suppose so, yeah. The best thing that can happen is it goes really well and part of you probably still regrets not making what you wanted to make. And I think there was a part, a little bit at the start of this album where because the first, the first album wasn't necessarily a radio record, it was part of me where I felt like a little bit of pressure. I wanted to make like a big album and I wanted it to be, you know, successful and I wanted it to work. And um, I think I was I was trying to do that for, you know, a couple of weeks. And uh, I just wasn't really happy with any of the music I was making. It, it, it was like getting close sometimes, but it just felt like I was trying to force it. And, and it kind of felt like, oh, yeah, this song, you know, there was a couple of songs. There was one in particular that was like a big turning point to me because we wrote this song. And everyone was really excited about it. And it was like, this feels like a really big song. And then I came to play it to someone and I was like cringing about playing it to someone. And I was like, that's not how you're supposed to feel Never when you, a good sign, you no. play your music to people. No. Um, and then my friend Tyler, who I work with, just said, you know, we were talking about these albums that I wanted to make in the future and what they would sound like. And, and he just said, you just have to make the album that you want to make right now. Right now. And yeah, that was a big turning point. And I ended up making the album that I wanted to make when, when it just wasn't about trying to make what people like. And I think you can make a bad song and you can make a bad album and you can make stuff that people don't like. Mm. 
but they'll still they they'll still believe in you as long as it's authentic. And I think the moment that people go, do you know what I'm kind of done with this? I don't want to support this anymore. Is when you're faking it and. I, I, you can't really blame people for that. Like if there was an artist I loved and I went to a show, I felt like the music they were making wasn't what they wanted to make. It wasn't them and they didn't really like it that much themselves. You can tell. I'd probably stop going. Yeah, you can tell. You can I tell pretty quickly. Fair. You can tell yeah. somewhere else. Um, so I've just, I, I just look at, I can only speak from personal experience and I can look at songs and be like, I've always... I've always made my worst music when I'm trying the hardest, mm. you know, and when it like feels a little bit too easy and feels a bit safe yeah. and, and it's just like, oh yeah, this is what people want. And I write it and I just don't like it. I just usually don't like it if, you know, um, and it's not about, you know, I don't mean to be like, oh, I want to make stuff that like is so confusing and, you know, it's just, I, I just only really know, I think a lot of the time when people are making music or they work in music, they think that everyone who works in music kind of operates on this like higher level of listening to fans. And, you know, sometimes people say like, oh, I don't know if people are going to get it and I don't know if people will understand it. And, and I think ultimately, like, everyone who works in music are just fans. Like, I'm just a fan of music who mm. gets to make some. So I kind of... I try and make it from that perspective. I try and write music as a fan of music. And um, and that's kind of, I, I just don't really know how else to do it, I guess. I think I think they're going to they're gonna take me out with a laser okay. if I don't stop soon. But I have one more if that's all right. We can right. do a couple, yeah. You sure? Yeah. Grant. It was back to that Bowie quote. Mm. You know, one of the other things that he said was, always remember that the reason you started making music was to understand more of yourself. Mm -hmm. What have you understood more of yourself through music? Um, I'd say, I'd say this album is, uh, will be a time of my life that I will look back on, um, as like quite a pivotal moment for me personally, I think probably forever. I just went through like a big moment of self-reflection. I, I, I partly maybe didn't have time to do properly before and kind of accepting a lot of things. Well, but it was busy, right? Cause you were in the band yeah. and then you're out of the band and then yeah, it was just like a lot yeah. of stuff kind of after each other. And I think with this one, after touring with the first album, um, I just felt very like accepted by the crowd. And, you know, I think when you're doing shows and stuff as, as part of the band, um, People have come, even with the shows, like people have come to see a band and it never, it never really feels like they're there for you because they're not, they're there to see a band. So I think when I went out and started doing shows on my own, I was kind of just amazed that people were coming to see me and, and, um, that felt like, oh, I just need to do what. I want to do and they want to see me be myself and, and, um, they're there for you. It's, they must yeah. do something, they must do something to you. Yeah. And it's, it's like a, it's a really amazing connection. It's like a special thing that you share with, with the people who come every night because, you know, it, it's kind of one of those things like when you actually think about what coming to a show means and you think about what it means when I go to a show, like you, you get the ticket and you go and you have to park and you, or you have to take the train and then you have to go and then you have to get home and, Babysitter. It, it, yeah, it's like, it's a lot of things. Like it means a lot for people to kind of take a night out to go, to go to a show. And, um, and that's like amazing. And it's the biggest, uh, compliment I think someone can pay you is, is going to a show that you're playing. And, you know, it, it's cause you think about everyone in the room and not everybody stood at the front. Not everybody has like the most amazing view. There's some people who are at the back and, uh, and they still come. And I think that's like a really beautiful thing. And, um, and then, yeah, I guess just, just like the, the process of making the album has been so joyous for me and felt very free. And, uh, I'm lucky to work with people who kind of create that environment for me to be able to be honest and vulnerable and experiment and get things wrong. And, uh, 
Yeah, I just feel like I learned a lot. I think this time, the times when I was happiest, it was like some of the happiest times of my life. And the times when I was sadder was some of the lowest times of my life. And um, I think that's kind of what the album's all about, is that kind of fragility of motion and how fast it can change. And, um, you know, that's why we kind of ended up calling the album Fine Line mm. is um, that was just like a theme through the whole the whole album process. So, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really proud of it. And you I'm, should I'm, be. Yeah. It's, it's lovely. And, and I know, I know we have to go. I, uh, I feel like you've always been able to insert, uh, and I mean this artfulness into spaces that don't always welcome it. And oh, I'm, well. and I'm appreciative Thank uh, you so of your much. work on that. Thank, Thank you very much. Lovely to meet Thanks you. for having me. Thank you, you very much. Thanks. Thank you. That's my conversation with Harry Styles earlier this year. We were talking about his second solo album, Fine Line. We also talked about his band, One Direction. The band got together 10 years ago this month. And to mark the occasion, there's a new One Direction anniversary website that just launched. Check it out at 10yearsof1d.com. That is it for the program today. Tomorrow on the show, Jarvis Cocker, who at one point, uh, I was talking to someone about this the other day. At one point, he at least would have been considered into the top 30 for coolest dude on earth. There was a time where, like, if you were having the conversation of who's the coolest dude on earth, Jarvis Cocker was in the conversation. You know what I mean? So what happens when you get older? What happens when you reach middle age? What happens when you're putting out new records? And what happens when you've had this childhood dream to be a pop star and you got it? What do you do after that? What do you do when you're the dog that caught the car? All right, we're going to talk to Jarvis Cocker about that tomorrow. All right, see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.